0: Welcome, everybody. My name is Mikal Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians. Episode 23, Islamic History, the year 610, the first revelation and its aftermath. I am not a mystic. I have never had an ecstatic experience like the great saints and the Sufis do. And to be perfectly honest, I really don't want to. And for the same reason, I have no desire for sainthood or even to have a full grasp of the unseen world. Yes, I desire to see God, but I think it's best that I don't have a physical body when that happens. Because I'm not sure I'd survive the experience. It's a major reason I don't hang out in caves, for instance, like Muhammad would, as you'll see. Seriously, if God ever came calling, I'd be Jonah. I still find his actions perfectly reasonable under the circumstances, and I find him to be a very underrated prophet. So have you ever watched a very good war movie, like The Longest Day or anything where the soldiers storm a beach? I always think about how unlucky these soldiers are. Like, how did they end up in this circumstance? Why weren't they able to get the cushier gig driving the armored small boat or firing shells from a destroyer. These men were all drafted, but I don't think these soldiers intentionally signed up to be thrown into a meat grinder while their naval counterparts sat safely on a boat. It kind of works that way in the spiritual world as well. All believers are headed to paradise, whether we're marines at Iwo Jima or operating a switchboard in the Philippines. So what profit is there, really, in being a prophet? In being a holy man? in being a mystic, in being a saint who experiences the dark night of the soul, who actually signs up to battle Satan. That's scary stuff, and it takes a certain kind of person with a certain number of screws loose, to be perfectly honest, to volunteer for that kind of thing. And that's why Muhammad makes me think of the greatest maniacs of World War II, the bomber crews who averaged about eight missions before being shot down, or the people who voluntarily spent months on end in giant tube-shaped coffins known as submarines, or the flamethrowers at Iwo Jima with an average lifespan of four minutes. I believe all these people made an actual conscious decision to do these things. Some people just have a penchant for danger and or heroism. And in the spiritual realm, Muhammad was one of these people. He basically went into an Air Force recruitment center and said, I want to fly a B-17 over Germany. Oh, and go ahead and make me the tail gunner. Why? He craved action more than he craved safety. And the place Muhammad enlisted was the Cave of Hira, where he would go for days on end in quiet contemplation. If you're trying to hear God, this is certainly a good strategy. And boy, did he end up hearing God. A mysterious force grabbed hold of him, and he could not move. The force ordered him to recite, and soon came the words of the first Islamic revelation. Read, in the name of thy Lord who createth, createth man from a clot. Read, and thy Lord is the most bounteous, who teacheth by the pen, teacheth teacheth man that which he knew not. Eventually, the grip was loosened enough for Muhammad to recite the verses back to the mysterious force, and as soon as he did so, he felt the force leave. He had felt an overwhelming loneliness when the force left, so he immediately packed up his things and he headed home. Muhammad ran down Mount Hira to his home. You know, I just always imagine him having that thousand-yard stare that veteran soldiers have, and he looked for his wife. At this point, it's also important to remember that Muhammad didn't really know that this was God or the angel Gabriel, more accurately. He thought it might have been a jinn, uh, which is an invisible spirit in Arabic lore. And the experience still shook him, quite literally, actually. He asked his wife to cover him as he shivered uncontrollably. Eventually, Muhammad began to tell his story to his wife, Khadija. And it was Khadija who convinced Muhammad that. It actually was not a jinn, but may have been something holy, maybe even God. Uh, and what was her basis for this belief? It was just an unshakable belief in her husband's character and a conviction that God would not torture or test, to use a different world, word, such a good man in this way. You know, of course, clearly she had never read the Bible. There's plenty of examples of that but she did know someone who had read the Bible, her cousin, Waraka. So Waraka is usually described as either a Christian or a Hanif. A Hanif would uh, be an Arabic term for what you might call an unaffiliated monotheist. A Hanif had no official religion, but knew that there was only one God and worshiped that one God. Abraham, for example, was a Hanif and until a few minutes ago, Muhammad had been a Hanif. So Khadijah consults Waraka. Regardless of his religion, the most important part was that Waraka had read the scriptures. I always picture Waraka as a cross between Yoda and Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, a strange, quirky old man living in the wilderness but full of old-time knowledge. Waraka rejoiced at the news, telling Khadijah that Muhammad had indeed been chosen by God. But he also delivers some harsh truth. Waraka understands what Muhammad had just signed up for. Being a prophet is not easy, and Waraka tells Muhammad that he will eventually be expelled from Mecca. And Waraka is regretful that he is so old he will not be able to see Muhammad, you know, when he actually becomes a prophet and the time comes for his public ministry. Waraka isn't really telling the future here. He's just letting Muhammad know, as someone who has read the stories of God's messengers, that this is simply par for the course. It's just the thing that happens to prophets. And all this just added to Muhammad's anxiety. Because, you know, as if Muhammad didn't have enough to think about, Now on top of everything, he's being promised a potentially horrible future. Uh, We know Muhammad was just fine, and he was lucky enough to be the archetype of most Old Testament prophets and eventually Islamic prophets. Those people are usually okay, but he didn't know that at the time. And I can't help but wonder what Warica was thinking, particularly if he was a Christian. For a Christian, the news that God is recruiting you would be more dismaying, Following Jesus, I mean really following Jesus and taking up the cross, almost by definition means persecution from an evil world, sometimes to extreme ends. This is certainly true of those who actually heard the call from God. John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, the rest of the apostles, countless saints. God's call brought them pain and suffering and ultimately martyrdom. If Muhammad was in a bit of a mental fog at all of this, um, there was one person who was completely sure of what had happened, and that was Khadija. Khadija was Muhammad's sage old wife. She was 55 at the time, uh, which in itself was a solid achievement living in the 7th century. Uh, She became the first Muslim. She fully trusted and believed in Muhammad, uh, which was why she had proposed marriage to him in the first place all those years ago. And that faith had not changed. She soon convinced Zaid, Muhammad's adopted son, and Ali, who was his cousin, 30 years his junior. Um, Ali lived in Muhammad's house and was pretty much like a son to him. Ali was the son of Abu Talib, the uncle who had taken in Muhammad when he was a child. And then eventually Abu Bakr, Muhammad's friend and a very wealthy merchant, Quickly became a believer as well. So that's your early roster of Muslims. Muhammad would return to the cave of Hira, and he would continue to receive several revelations. He was basking in the reflected glory of the divine, and he understood that Waraka had been right all along, and so was Khadijah. The first revelation would later be described in the Quran in Surah 96. It would become known as the Night of Destiny in most translations, but Pickthall would call it the Night of Predestination and the Night of Power. Uh, Here's how it's described in the Quran. Lo, we revealed it on the Night of Predestination. Ah, what will convey unto thee what the Night of Power is? The Night of Power is better than a thousand months. The angels and the Spirit descend therein, by the permission of their Lord, with all decrees. The night is peace until the rising of the dawn." Now that's from Surah 97. I may have confused you earlier. The first revelation is recorded in Surah 96. Surah 97 is the description of the first revelation. This happened on the 27th night of the Islamic month of Ramadan. And many Muslims still believe that night, and the nights leading up to it hold special power prayer is stressed during this time, and some believe a prayer's power is magnified. You know, like the source says, the night of power is better than a thousand months. And peace until the rising of the dawn. Uh, I'll admit, I don't see a dawn very often. I'm a night owl, sometimes extremely so. There's just something about the early morning that literally makes me sick to my stomach. But the dawn, when you do see it, just conveys a sense of enormity. Maybe it's just because it's rare for me, but to see the transformation that the dawn brings is extremely powerful. And it feels like you're watching a miracle. And you are, really. And we understand what's happening. I mean, imagine how it looked to someone who was living in the seventh century. of Islam, formerly known as Cat Stevens, has a great lyric on this. Uh, his new stuff is great, by the way. I, I highly recommend it. In his song, Welcome Home, is the following lyric. Never did I imagine what a dawn could be Till I opened my eyes to see it was welcoming me. I wish I could get the rights to play some of his stuff on this podcast, uh, but I have no idea how to do that. He sings it with far more meaning and soul. I'd also love to know whether this was a reference to the Night of Power as well. Um, I have to think Muhammad's feeling would have been similar, and he was being welcomed in by God himself. But there's usually a downside to seeing the dawn. You inevitably have to move on with the mundane aspects of the day that comes afterward. And if you stayed up all night, things are really going to get complicated. So Muhammad continued to receive revelations, learning to move back and forth between the majesty of God and the comparative dullness of everyday life. I have to think he was learning to balance this and was pretty happy about his situation, and he even had some believers. And life is like that. Sometimes at the height of our revelries, when our joy is at its zenith, when all is most right with the world, the most unthinkable disasters descend upon us. And what was that disaster for Muhammad? Muhammad. God went silent, cut him off completely, no revelations for a month, then several months, then a year, then two years. Can you imagine the torture of that? Now you start wondering again, was that God? Am I delusional? Maybe it was a jinn after all. Or worse yet, did God abandon me? For two years, Muhammad waited. And he was, as it appears, completely honest with the other believers about what was happening. So, why would God do that? Let me follow that question with a disclaimer. Trying to understand God's motivations is completely moronic. If you're being completely serious about your conclusions, that is. Can I explain to an ant why he can't be in my house? can I explain to my pet that the vet really, really cares about him and that seeing the vet is a good thing? If God really was recruiting Muhammad for something holy, I'm sure he had a very good reason. Perhaps he was testing him. Maybe he wanted to give Muhammad's body a physical break. Maybe he thought it best that Muhammad consolidate his small band of hardcore believers. Really, who knows? But the important thing is, eventually, the silence receded as recorded in Surah 93 of the Qur'an. By the morning hours, and by the night when it is stillest, thy Lord hath not forsaken thee, nor doth he hate thee. And verily, the latter portion will be better for thee than the former. And verily, thy Lord will give unto thee, so that thou will be content. Did he not find thee an orphan and protect thee? Did he not find thee wandering and direct thee? Did he not find thee destitute and enrich thee? Therefore, the orphan oppress not. Therefore, the beggar drive not away. Therefore, of the bounty of thy Lord be thy discourse. You can almost see a dig at Muhammad for believing that he had been abandoned. You know, noting how God had taken care of him throughout his whole life. And because of this, God expects Muhammad to do the same for others. This hints that the years of silence may have been not only a test, but also a preparation for Muhammad during the difficult times to come. God has not abandoned you. He will never abandon you. So now go out there and act accordingly. And he would, very soon, taking his ministry public. That's where we'll pick back up next month in Islamic history. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.